This is Leighton Phillips uh, from S-Fuels. Awesome to be uh, with Derek and the team here and uh, great to share a little bit about our uh, our story so far and some of the results we're having across the projects with pro and age group athletes on fat oxidation and looking forward to share it with you. Cool, Leighton. Let's talk about fat oxidation then because obviously this whole episode is about that. But I think a lot of people hear the word oxidize and they hear like antioxidants, like I need to take more antioxidants and they hear fat oxidation. So there's some confusion there. So what exactly is fat oxidation and why is that important? Yeah, um, look, I guess it's just one of a number of substrates, right, that the body can use uh, fat. And, um, you know, when we talk about oxidation, where, you know, simple terms talking about burning um, substrates to ultimately produce energy happens, uh, you know, in, in the mitochondria of the cell. And uh, there are a number of factors that can uh, either, you know, ramp that up or uh, frankly, it can, to, to, to some degree, turn it off. And um, it's important in the spirit that, you know, any given person, you know, obviously there's different shapes and sizes, but uh, generally speaking, can hold, you know, 20, 30, 40,000 calories in uh, fatty acids um, in the body. And uh, if we could learn how to access that, <laughs> Um, obviously it goes a long way to thinking about what we can do in endurance sport. Um, and there's a lot of factors uh, of it. And there's also a lot of, um, what would you say, um, not even rumors, but just perceptions maybe on what it is and what it isn't and what it's capable of and what it's not capable of. So yeah, hopefully we can cover some of that today, uh, Derek. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because like when I got into running and, and biking and stuff, it seemed like everyone's just like shovel carbs, like as many carbs as you can. But at the same time, it doesn't really make any sense because your body only has enough like glycogen stores for what, 90 to 120 minutes, right? Yeah, it's it's really capped. Um, and uh, whether it's in the liver or obviously in the muscles, um, yeah, after two, two and a half hours, certainly you've exhausted most of that. Um now, this is not a binary system, right? It's it's very much um, shifting um, relative to physical intensity. Uh, how much of that fat or or uh, carbohydrate, uh, meaning glycogen, that you're oxidizing or burning for energy, uh, even when we're asleep, right? Where we're burning, um, you know, quite a considerable amount of calories, and most of those because of just the low intensity of generally speaking as um is uh is fat um but yeah it's you know we've got 30 40 years of being ingrained into a sugar first carbohydrate first mentality uh in terms of sports nutrition and i would say over the past decade that's really being mostly from the endurance segment is being questioned and uh probably in the endurance segment largely because most of the racing happens, you know, between 50 and 75%, maybe up to 80% VO2 max. So it's happening in a lower intensity uh, versus say track running or, you know, football or basketball, et cetera, which is super high intensity, but for short bursts, if you will. So a lot of the work that's gone on both in an industry concept and with uh, research and with coaches and with athletes certainly has been led by the uh, endurance uh, endurance sports. Yeah, it's interesting just talking to guys that are getting ready for Western States right now because that's coming up and you guys have Nicole Bitter running, um, Zach Bitter's wife. And um, this is interesting thinking about that because everyone always talks about carbohydrates at Western States and all these things, but like no one's running at like 180 beats per minute for 15, 16, 17, 18 hours at Western States. And so I'm maybe I'm off base here, but I imagine they're all zone two fat burning for the most part, maybe a small amount of carbohydrates in there. Correct. Yeah. There's no question that, um, look, they all, and, and by the way, um, just for the record, uh, from an S fields perspective, um, uh, we, we, um, offer and we promote all substrates, meaning fat based carbohydrate based. This is all to do with intensity. So when you look at a race like Western States, um, or any any ultra for that matter. Um, if you're, let's just say, podium age group or professional athlete, you will clearly be very dialed into what you're doing with carbohydrates on the day. That doesn't take away from the fact that 
without a question, you are still burning a ton of fat uh, to fuel that type of performance. And um, the difference, of course, even in uh, athletes that wouldn't say that they are focused on a low carbohydrate diet, if you look at professional athletes by the sheer volume of their training, they have upregulated their fat oxidation dramatically. Um, the two biggest factors that are most determinant of fat oxidation efficiency, and this was a study done of looking at um, about 200 and sorry, 430 athletes that have gone through substrate testing. Um, you know, the two biggest factors is basically the number of uh, like zone two long, slow distance training sessions. So, you know, we would say LSD in the historically, um, but basically aerobic zone two sessions, the number of those they're doing. And secondly, would be the amount of fat in the diet and training. Uh, they're the two most pre predeterminate factors of fat oxidation efficiency. So when you look at a professional athlete, you know, and they're doing hundred, you know, in their big blocks, right they're doing a hundred miles a week plus um, you know, they're doing a bunch of just longer, slow distance and obviously punctuated with periods of temporary work uh, as part of their training blocks. So by nature, they, even if they're not focused at a dietetic level, by nature of their training, they've already have a bunch of optimization going on with respect to fat oxidation efficiency. Yeah, I think it was Jason Coop years ago, who's very much like pro carb, pro high carb, was saying that most athletes, like endurance athletes specifically, are burning fat at some point during their training, even though they don't say like I'm a fat burner. It's just biology, right? When you're doing a type of event like this. It's very much biology. If you look at any textbook, any textbook on physiology, you will see that. Um, and, and I'm going to show you some charts here in a second. You will see that um, at you know, different, the question is not whether people do or not. Everyone does. In fact, without, we would, we would keel over uh, very quickly because to your point earlier of just how little we have to work with. Um, and so everyone's burning it. The, the difference we're talking about is really how far up the intensity level can you continue to oxidize fat efficiently before you switch to carbohydrate? And it's not a, again, binary switch. It's a ratio, right? And again, I'll show you some charts soon that give you some sense on, on this um, with our projects that have been running with athletes uh, since we started. Yeah, so I guess before we jump into that, just to give a, just like a quick little um, intro, let's talk about the types of fuel that the body uses because I think everyone understands the glycogen but then like, what's the kind of sort of fat metabolism process to be able to convert fat into energy? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think what you're referring to just endogenous fat, meaning like fatty tissue. I mean, there's two, there's two really re repositories, if you will, there is, um, it's actually fat, uh, in and around muscle tissue or intramuscular, uh, triglycerides. That's one type of fat that, um, is oxidized. And then you have um, adipose tissue or fatty tissue, fat as we would generally know it, um, which needs to be firstly broke down and then it needs to be transported through the blood and then it needs to come in through the membrane of the mitochondria and then ultimately oxidize or burnt, right? Um, and that's, they are long chain fatty acids is how we're storing most of that endogenous fats. Now, on top of that, of course, we can take in um, fats and obviously carbohydrates. And um, those fats that we can take in, of course, can be different types. But mostly um, in the diet, you'll see also long chain fatty acids, um, uh, you know, in all the different forms, olive oils and avocado, and obviously a whole bunch of lower quality fats. But then you also have uh, a medium chain uh, triglyceride fat, meaning there's less carbon molecules linked together. So when we say long chain, we're talking like, you know, 18, 20 plus carbon molecules linked together. In a medium chain, you know, we're talking up to that like 16 carbons, but, you know, it's in that eight to 10 carbon range where the, those medium chain triglycerides that you can consume they come through the gut as fast as a carbohydrate 
And they don't, unlike when you take, say, an olive oil or avocado, et cetera, that oil, the long chain fatty acid, it will have to go through the gut, through the liver. It actually has to go through the lymphatic system before it gets into the blood supply. If you're looking at the medium chain triglycerides, uh, that will come directly through the gut, through the liver, straight into the blood supply. And it also needs no transporter to get into the mitochondria for burning. So, you know, um, the fats we have internally sitting in the body, um, they generally have to be broken down, transported through the blood, delivered into the into the uh, into the cell for oxidation. Uh, these medium chain fats are fairly interesting. A lot of people talk about them more in the spirit of their ability to ketones, and that's true. But just as a raw substrate, they're very interesting because they can traverse membranes without transporters. And that is what makes them very efficient and effective for use uh, in training, uh, even in racing um, for, for substrate. Now, on top of those two, so we've talked about carbohydrate, or we've talked about fats, carbohydrates, of course, you have, you know, predominantly, I guess, the most prominent ones that we, we talk about is, is fructose and glucose. And, you know, they come together in form of table sugar as sucrose. Uh, so when we say sugar, we're really referring to this 50-50 blend of fructose and glucose. And then above that, you then have, and that's like a disaccharide. And then you get into these, you know, multiple glucose strung together into these forms of starches, I guess, most well-known maltodextrin uh, you see in a lot of products. Um, and then the more advanced forms of this, like the highly branched cyclic dextrin, um, and these are all just, you know, different strings together of glucose. Um, fructose may sound and seem very similar, but it's processed really quite differently than glucose. And it is problematic both in the gut for a lot of people. And secondly, uh, it has a detrimental effect on fat oxidation, which to have efficient fat oxidation by taking any form of um, intake in terms of energy fuel, whether that's drinks or bars or what have you, even fruit that is very high in fructose, uh, it will have a blunting effect on your fat oxidation efficiency. But nevertheless, it's another substrate. And by the way, because they're processed differently, um, these are all... Uh, incremental, meaning like they're processed through different metabolic pathways. So how the fat's being processed is one pathway and it can happen simultaneously and in parallel to how glucose is being processed and becoming an energy. And that is different to how fructose is being processed. And why that's important is because it wasn't that long ago, meaning like 90s, where you know research showed and to glucose, you could increase the amount of overall oxidation. And that's why I mean it's incremental because it's a separate metabolic pathway. So um, that's all good and well. It's not as fructose is not as efficient as glucose, meaning grams per minute, one gram, pretty much the cap per minute, one gram of glucose is pretty much the cap. Um, and then about 0.75 grams of fructose is pretty much uh, per minute is pretty much the cap for fructose. So, you know, 1.75 grams per minute, you can do the math on this. And there's a bunch of papers on this to see what the, the limit limitation is. Um, on top of all of that, then you get into um, uh, several other substrates like glutamine, like exogenous ketones, um, that, you know, are also substrates, uh, that the body can utilize to produce that, you know, carbon molecules to produce energy. Um, and we can talk more about them. They have their peculiarities, both in the spirit of as a substrate or as a functional, um, nutritional element. Um, but they also have, you know, absorption characteristics, cost characteristics, 
um, and even, um, frankly, taste characteristics. So it is all important, as you would well know, Derek, right, in the middle of an ultra, um, things like taste become a, a real issue. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. If you can't stomach something when uh, you're hungry, you're much less going to be able to stomach it when you're maybe nauseous or in the heat or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So speaking of um, of ketones, then, there's the endogenous and exogenous ketones. And I've been speaking to a few companies recently. I spoke with the guys from Delta G, uh, HVMN and um, Ketonade. Right, those and they all taste slightly different, and they're all slightly different products as well. Um, but could we talk a little bit about like the types of ketones your body produces endogenously, but then also the benefits, say, of like an exogenous ketone? Yeah, there's kind of two types in the body. There's a L form and a, a D form, and the D form is really the one that, as it relates to you know substrate use, if you will, it's the predominant one that's used in the body and you'll see that um the 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 providers that have gone on to produce exogenous forms of these are using the d form the dbhb um, there is another form of ketone acetoacetate and, and really um that's less uh has been less the focus um and it's, it hasn't delivered if you will the same substrate outcomes that we see in um beta-hydroxybutyrate which is the bhb form and then specifically the d form of this is what you know the companies you've mentioned are focused on now the nuance with a lot of these um is how they bind it um into a uh, either a fluid or a, more recently uh, powders uh, the powders are bound to salts and typically sodium uh, potassium magnesium calcium uh, these have some limitations, of course, not because of uh, limitations on dosage amounts, largely because of some of the implications of taking too much sodium or magnesium, calcium, what have you. Um, then you get into the esters, which some of the companies you've referred to produce different forms of ester. Um, and I think some of them are probably using the word ester a little poetically. Um versus you know some of the original research that was done in oxford um and you know i would just say that um you first you got to look at exogenous ketones in the spirit let's maybe just wind it back a bit and just talk about uh endogenous production right so when when fat gets broken down and obviously carbohydrate uh meaning glycogen levels are low um liver low levels of liver glycogen muscle glycogen um, and the body begins to break down fat um, to fuel the brain uh, it's in that process that the liver then produces those ketones and like i said it's that d d form of uh, bh and uh, that uh, particular compound can you know pass through the blood brain barrier and feed feed the brain um, and it's just, it's one of the, um, you know, amazing su survival aspects of the human body. Um, those same, that same compound can fuel muscles. Um, so, and this, as I say, glycogen levels get very low. It, it produces this. Um, now that's just a pure substrate level. There is a lot of research that, you know, both in defense and beyond defense, meaning more um, laboratory academic research is looking at on the functional aspects of uh, BHB and meaning like higher levels of BHB. When we say someone's, you know, in a state of ketosis, we're really talking, you know, above one uh, millimole. But um, when you start looking at a lot of the research and they start talking about some of the more, um, interesting effects that um, dosing exogenous ketones into the body they're really talking to get into the two plus millimolar range uh, of blood bhb levels uh, in some cases closer to three and that's where they can begin to see some of these effects like uh, stimulating urethropoietin which you know effectively produce you know, stimulate trigger triggering further red blood cell production um, where you can start to see dopaminergic um, 
increases for cognitive functions. Um, and so, so, you know, I think you really do need to delineate the two functions of, is it just a substrate? Because at the moment that's interesting, but quite frankly, if you're spending $85 for several bottles of which accounts for, you know, 75 grams of ketones. And meanwhile, you haven't got your fat oxidation system working well. You know, you're making a very expensive um, fueling system for your endurance sport. Um, ultimately, you know, the pricing will continue to come down for exogenous ketones, but it's still, it's still, if you were to use it consistently to get these functional effects, it's um, it's not in reach of the masses really. Um, but I, I think the work that some of the leading companies are doing uh, around this will continue to shrink that price. It probably will become in reach of the masses. Um, but I, I don't think that if you just look at more caloric requirements of endurance sport, um, I just don't think it makes sense to try to have a, you know, do nothing for your fat oxygen efficiency, meaning you're burning a half a gram a minute of fat. And meanwhile, you're taking 25 grams every three hours uh, in a training session or a race uh, of ketones. It just doesn't, the, the math just doesn't add up. So I think you want to have the foundation of, you know, efficient fat oxidation. You want to be able to also oxidize carbohydrate very well, particularly at these higher intensities. And then I think after that, you know, the role of exogenous ketones to really, uh, or would say complement that further purely as a substrate is really interesting. Um, and then as the prices come down and we can get into a more functional daily consumption of this, you know, beginning to get access to some of the more functional aspects of, you know, high dose exogenous ketones on a daily basis. I think that gets really interesting. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting. Like when um, they had the studies going on at Oxford and stuff, like the cost per per serving was just insanely high. Yeah. Like, not right. like no one could ever afford that. Right. Right. Like That's you've right. seen like as more brands have entered the market and just like production has changed, like the cost has gone down quite a bit, but it's still it's like astronomical to use as a training tool today. It's not like buying a gel or something. It's just right. Right. It's, it's pretty wild. And, and the other aspect, uh, by the way, is like, um, you know, it's easy to say that all, you know, they use the word Esther, like I say, a little loosely, um, you know, don't be confused. Some of these it's, it's essentially, you know, uh, alcohol derivative, right? So you, you do have to look at, if you start getting into higher dosage realms, the implications of that, right? So um, I'm not sure everyone recognizes that, but there were studies in the early of, you know, where some of those dial forms, right, where they were dosed at high enough levels where cognitive function was uh, impacted because, again, you're, you are talking about effectively a derivative from an alcohol perspective. So we, we know what the effect of that has on cognitive functions. <laughs> so, um, uh, a molecule that avoids that um, and can, you know, rapidly put a subject into um, a fairly high level of ketosis in, you know, 30 to 60 minutes. Um, probably clears clears the blood two to three hours, depending upon you know what the person's doing, of course. Uh, but that that lends itself to uh, a pretty interesting usage model in endurance racing. But again, I would just come back to um, you know I could I could I've got athletes that we have tripled the fat oxidation efficiency where they've gone from a half a gram, and I'll show you a chart on this, a half a gram a minute to 1.8 grams a minute there's no comparison in terms of caloric access energy access to that from any other form of substrate uh, so i think you you want to work on the foundations before you 
sprinkle the top with some of these more exotic options substrate wise it, it seems like a lot of just i guess human culture in general is trying to like find the easiest path right so it's like <laughs> you know, let's take a supplement instead of just changing our diet or whatever so let's talk about kind of those foundations then because obviously you can your diet will affect your it affects your ability to either burn glucose or, or fat or ketones so can you kind of talk about that like i don't know how would you maximize i guess fat burning through your diet and building a strong foundation versus paying, like you're saying, an insane amount of money just to buy ketone esters. Yeah. I mean, you know, firstly, um, there's, there's kind of some foundation macro things you can do, um, in the diet. And like I said earlier, by the way, you can do, you can get a lot of bang for buck just through the nature of your training. Right. So we can talk more about that, but as it relates to your question on diet, um, you know, so like, like pretty much every part of the body, if you stress it, it will get better at something to a point, right? And there is absolutely a point where, you know, you go from overuse and stressing to create strength where you move into the realm of abuse and, you know, um, the, the, the issues of, of like a muscle or anything else, if you stress it too hard, right? It, it has a, either a, a fracture or it has a micro injury or you know what have you i think in the case of diet you know what the research would show is just by increasing the amount of fat the body gets much better at utilizing it for energy right and this is different to if you were to take a lot of carbohydrate and a lot of carbohydrate um you can actually train the gut to take more carbohydrate, but um, you will find that it begins to have a detrimental effect on fat oxidation efficiency and ultimately carbohydrate metabolism, i.e. diabetes. Uh, but yeah, firstly, just adding more fat into the diet. And obviously, you know, we would promote healthy fats. Um, and then... Um, if you look at the timing of carbohydrates, now sometimes we're called out for being a low carbohydrate company. Um, we have, you know, products that have low carbohydrate, but our, you know, what we've trademarked is this reference of right fuel, right time. And all that's referring to is a, there is a time which uh, carbohydrate is most appropriate for your metabolism. And there is a time when it's not only not required, but it can have a detrimental effect on your efficiency to burn fat. So if at rest, like we are right now, and if we were sipping on Coca-Cola, right, um, it is rapidly raising blood. And one of the core functions of insulin is to shut off fat, fat oxidation. So when we think about the classic, you know, 30 years, we talked about carbohydrate loading and before race day, sitting at the starting line and sipping on, you know, some type of high glucose, fructose, corn syrup drink or a gel or what have you, you've just set up your body for the race for the least, at least the first three hours where you are going to be overly dependent on carbohydrate because you've spiked insulin and that has blunted your fat oxidation. We've done some studies on this. And, um, you know, when we get into just talking a little bit about best practice, this is a really important thing is to understand the timing of carbohydrate. There is absolutely a time to take carbohydrate and it will not have effect at that point on fat oxidation. There are other times when we are in low intensity arrest, where as we take these simple sugars, we are, you know, blunting and shutting down fat oxidation. So at the highest level, increasing fat and then just picking your times. And I'll show you some easy ways to do this in a second um, of, of when to use carbohydrate. Um, there's some other um, things we can take in, Derek, that can improve fat oxidation efficiency too. Um, green tea extract, the compound known as ECGC and inside of green tea uh, upregulates fat oxidation, caffeine upregulates fat oxidation, glutamine upregulates fat oxidation, 
Um, so we can talk about how to get some of those things into the body um, to, to, to further improve it. Oh, sorry, I was on mute. <laughs> You're right, no problem. Um, uh, yeah, I think um, people, for the most part, kind of realize that, like, or use caffeine, I should say, like pretty heavily. Most endurance athletes do. It's pretty common, but they probably don't realize that one, it has a thermogenic effect, and then two, it does help fat metabolism. Can, so can we kind of talk about those things you just mentioned, um, e.g., EGCG and also glutamine? Yeah, so um, let's talk about caffeine first. Um, it, it So I would say most prominently there are, the first usage of course of caffeine is the cognitive uplift, right? The, milligrams to get that cognitive boost if you will right and this is basically it's not actually increasing dopamine it's actually um increasing the receptor sites to for the dopamine once it gets um uh, if you will supplemented into the cleft of the neurons the it's not competing for as there's more sites for it to bind to and to have the up, you know, upregulation of, you know, mood and all the different cognitive aspects of caffeine. Now, if you want to get into then what I think athletes are probably more using it for, um, which is more about, you know, raising access to fat, um, oxidation. And this is, again, remember I said before, there's the breaking down of fats, and that's what we'll get to talking about green tea for, what we're talking though here about is the role of caffeine to actually improve the oxidation. So this is once the fat gets into the mitochondria, it can actually upregulate the oxidation of that fat into energy. And the, the most important thing to recognize here is that it's the amount of caffeine you need to, to achieve this. And like I said before, for a cognitive function, you only need about 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. If you're trying to get the fat ox oxidation improvement, the upregulation, uh, you need about 2.5 to 3 milligrams. So again, if you were a 80 kilogram person, you need about you know 240 milligrams of caffeine to get that upregulated effect, and that lasts for about it has about a half life of about six hours. So then you know if you were doing a 50 mile or et cetera, at some point in the race, you would have to dose again if you wanted to maintain um, an upregulated fat ox level through the entirety of that race. Um, so yeah, I and mean, that's 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 how caffeine uh, works. That's the to take um, to get that effect. Um, the, the other uh, compound, I think I maybe I did or did not mention was, oh, well, maybe I should touch on green tea first and the ECGCs. Uh, these are uh, flavonoids or catechins as they're known as. Um, like I said, it, it it more has the effect of heightening lipolysis, which is that breakdown of the fatty tissue um, or the, the cells to release the triglycerides into the blood. And then that comes through into muscle cells into the mitochondria to get oxidized. So um, it, it's working on the start, if you will, of the process, which is the release or the lipolysis, the breakdown of the fatty tissue. Um, and, you know, obviously you can take a green tea. Um, sure, you can do that. And it's not like you need a lot um, of this, like single single dose of a classic tea bag of green tea will have this effect. Uh, but in one of the things I would just mention for both caffeine and green tea is like all herbal medicines. I did, I did six years in nutritional medicine and herbal medicine, um, my studies. And, you know, one of the challenges with herbal medicine is that um, the, the extraction process um, can be consistent. However, the source material can have different levels of a compound. So when you look at coffee in the morning, um, 
firstly, there is the type of bean. Secondly, is how it was roasted. And thirdly, is how we obviously have it. You know, do we do we slow drip it? Do we percolate it? Um, do we mix it with milk? All of these factors can have a spread of 300% of the amount of caffeine that comes in a given cup of coffee. So the problem with that for an athlete is that you really don't know what your baseline of working with at any point in time because the, the source is so irregular or can be irregular. Even in the same bean, by the way, uh, you can have dramatic shifts season to season. Um, and then, um, you know, when you go to use it, of course, if that baseline is shifting, you don't know how much you should be taking. So, and part of the reason we put uh, caffeine into a specific caffeine only product like it has nothing but caffeine and some aminos and i'll talk about them in a second is because you need a measured dose you need to be able to have a baseline of saying okay 80 milligrams of caffeine this is the effect it has right um so and then yeah the other compound i would talk about is l-carnitine i just did a paper on this or sorry i did a video on this i talked about some of the research associated historically we, you know, the research that happened on L-carnitine, we, we know that L-carnitine has a very clear, well-documented, again, it's in the classic textbooks of physiology. Its function is to help shuttle uh, long-chain fatty acids uh, into the mitochondria. And then, in fact, the metabolites of the oxidation of that long-chain fatty acids, those metabolites are shuttled out of, of the cell. Um, that's the function of uh, L-carnitine. So the assumption was then, well, okay, if I dose it a little more, maybe I can I can improve that. And a lot of the early studies that looked at this, um, the the dosage they were using and the length of time that they were running the study was insufficient to show an effect. And it was only really, um, like I was saying in this video we just did, uh, maybe what ten or twelve years ago, that they did a study that looked over like about a six month period and the dosage was, you know, I, uh, I think it was uh, twice daily of two grams. Um, so four grams per day in effect um, where they showed that then you could increase intramuscular carnitine levels uh, by 20 something percent. And when that happened, they absolutely saw a dramatic improvement on uh, glycogen preservation. And that's what the whole fat oxidation agenda is about for an athlete is that if I can burn fat and I'm not accessing so much my muscle glycogen, when I get to the latter end of the race, or frankly, even during the race, particularly in ultra running where elevation is up and down and you're, you're thrown into levels of high intensity just because of the elevation change, you know, aren't glycogen to work with right? Because I'll be mostly using this fat. So um, L-carnitine is a really interesting uh, compound uh, to increase uh, that uh, effectiveness of shuttling fat in and using the fat for, uh, for, uh, for a substrate for energy. But um, just speaking of like, of the carnitine versus caffeine, for example, because I think like caffeine seems more like an acute thing where you, you take it and you feel the effects almost immediately. But with L-carnitine, you'd need to kind of take it consistently to have any real effect from it, correct? Yeah, spot on. Um, so caffeine, there's the feeling of the effect and even the upregulation of fat oxidation, it's it's still quite acute, meaning if you take, like I said, those dosages I mentioned earlier, 2.5 to 3 milligrams per kilogram of body weight, you will have this upregulation effect. Alcanity, it's not... Um, you know, you have to dose it for quite some time. And the, the research would suggest it's probably somewhere between nine and 20, 20 plus weeks before you can really start seeing an upregulated amount of muscle L-carnitine. Uh, so it does take some time, but the, the, the payback is material uh, in terms of uh, improving uh, yeah, fat oxidation efficiency. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's jump into those charts that you have. You've referenced them a few times. So um, let's talk about those for a second. You want to bring them up on the screen? Yeah, I can do that. Um, let me try this here. Let me know if that's uh, coming up for you and it's all good. Yeah, I can see it. It looks good. Okay. So maybe I just jump straight into um, 
we've been running a number of projects with both professional athletes and age group, I would say, um, what would you say? Top of age group athletes, right? So we didn't want to make sure that this is just a pro athlete because that's not always a classic proxy for how everyone should operate. But what we did is we chose these athletes across uh, different intensity uh, level endurance sports, Ironman racing, uh, ultra, uh, you know, hundred mile uh, racing, Olympic distance triathlon racing. And if you were to kind of try to think about those, uh, Derek, in the context of, you know, intensity from a percentage of VO2 max, Ironman mostly is one at around 75% VO2 max intensity levels for these athletes. Ultras, you know, obviously they're up and down because like what average are probably sitting more in that 60 to 70 percent um uh uh vo2 max and then olympic distance triathlon is you know it's typically 80 80 plus percent of vo2 max this is important because when you look across these athletes and these projects that we we worked on we were working on different aspects between you know how can we affect glycogen preservation so on the left hand side in 2018 we only had at that point a training product that would seek to improve fat oxidation and preserve glycogen. And what we wanted to understand and what we wanted to impact was the latter end of the race, the marathon in the case of an Ironman, uh, that you could consistently churn out mile after mile, the 26 miles, um, a fairly consistent uh, you know, minutes per mile. And in the case of Dan, he ran two hours, 50 on the marathon there in Hawaii. Um, by the way, he was even against the pros. There was only uh, five other professional athletes that ran faster than him on the day. Um, but if you look at his miles, they were the same minutes per mile across the whole room. So where others, including professionals, you would see this drift down uh, for someone that can preserve glycogen and continue to um, oxidize fat at high intensity levels, uh, the uh, the pace can remain the same across the uh, across the finish of the race. And then in twenty so twenty nineteen obviously was somewhat out right because of COVID. Um, in twenty twenty we we were working with Zach on this hundred mile treadmill world record. I, you were there with us on the day. Uh, awesome day, most stressful day of my life, I think. Um, but uh, you know what we were trying to understand was even does this apply when you extend the timeout even further um, in terms of being able to run fat oxidation at very high intensity levels? So, you know, he's talking a, around seven, seven, 18, seven minutes, 18 minutes per mile, a hundred times over for 12 hours. And if you actually look at um, grams per hour, of carbohydrate, only 40 grams uh, per hour, we think. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about you assume that these athletes are still burning a bunch of fat. You know, you only have to do the math to look at how much carbohydrate we can physically hold in the way of glycogen in the liver and the muscles to realize that for any person to do these kind of numbers, 12 hours, 100 times one mile repeats at 17 seven minutes, 18 per mile, you realize they're burning a ton of fat. And uh, in Zach's case, probably around 1.4 grams per minute. And then we wanted to switch to in 21 to understand what would happen um, if you take this format to much higher intensity, shorter. So this was Olympic distance and literally the Tokyo Olympics. Um, and this is where we started testing uh, different types of carbohydrate that would move through the gut very fast. In fact, like 30% faster than straight glucose and avoiding the use of fructose. Would it have a detrimental effect on performance? Uh, you know, Hayden, <clears throat> Hayden podiumed at the medaled at the, uh, at the Tokyo Olympics. He won the Xterra world championship 
He was the uh, Super League Series champion. Super League even is a even more intense um, uh, format of triathlon than Olympic distance. It's a shorter distance, but multiple, if you will, intervals or sets, if you will, of of the disciplines: uh, swim, bike, and run. Um, so yeah, we were we were validating that it's not like if you can improve the fat oxidation, you lose the top end. And I've got some more research I'll share with you in a second on this. And then the last test we have was really, there was this kind of rumor around that, oh, as you improve your fat oxidation, you lose your power efficiency. And I'm going to show you charts on this in a second, but uh, we did this with Matt Kerr, again, an age group athlete, originally, you know, 10 and a half hour Ironman, which is kind of middle of the road, started working with him, improved his fat ox. I'll show you the charts. But what's most interesting with Matt is the performance, sorry, the power he had on the bike, uh, even while he, you know, tripled his fat oxidation, he doubled his power on the bike. And again, doing this, uh, improving fat oxidation, not using fructose, uh, so these were the projects that we kind of worked with athletes on, you know, obviously parallel to this, we've now got, you know, literally thousands of athletes, tens of thousands of usages of our product, but we wanted to run some quite, you know, uh, focused uh, efforts with some athletes to really understand what was going on and whether we could achieve, you know, elite level world-class performances so in this, Dan on the left set the world record in Kona for age group of 824. Zach set the world record for 100 miles on the treadmill. He then won the U.S. 100-mile road championship. Hayden medaled world champion Xterra, uh, sorry, medaled at the Olympics, uh, won Super League, and then Matt won the world championship in Utah for the, for the Ironman and set the course record. So we feel as observation so far is that there's some materiality underneath this. Can we improve it further? Absolutely. And that's what we're, we're working on. So this is the, the chart that um, kind of talks to what I said earlier about there's two aspects here of both training and diet that can, you know, really shift the metabolic makeup in the body on how it, efficiency and thereby preserve muscle glycogen you don't need to also take as much carbohydrate so reduce the number one reason for not finishing these races is still gut gi distress and all of that put together we think it sets up for a, a much better finish these charts what they're showing is is you know as you ramp the x-axis is basically power and this is on a bike and i'll show you some run data in a second but this is as you ramp the power or if you will, the intensity um, uh, with the athlete. And it's basically, you know, just harder to push the pedals. Think of it that way. Yeah. And the Y axis is looking at, well, what's contributing to the energy to actually do that. And the way this is done is in the case of a bike, you're sitting on the bike and then they um, put you up to a, a mask, hook, hook you up to a mask. And it's, basically has uh, some sensors that's looking at the oxygen and the carbohydrate, uh, sorry, the carbohydrate, the carbon dioxide coming out, the oxygen going in. And those two factors is used to feed uh, an algorithm to understand at any point in time across this intensity curve, um, how much carbohydrate and how much fat is being uh, consumed. So, if I look on the left here, where you know he began, his highest, you know, level of oxidizing fat was 0.53 grams per minute, and this is back in March of 2019, and he did that at a maximum wattage power of 135 watts. What's important to note here is that as you start to get out to 200, 250 watts on this left-hand chart, right? Basically, um, you know, around 80% of his energy is coming from carbohydrate. 
So this is why in most athletes today that are not paying any attention to improving fat oxidation, they become so dependent on carbohydrate, uh, exogenous carbohydrate intake during a race. So on the right side is, you know, and, and I'm showing you kind of over a two year horizon, there were tests that were done in the middle that showed you incremental improvement. But if you look at this two year horizon, um, you know, and we look straight into this, um, let's say 300 watts point here at 300 watts, the little yellow dot is at 80%. And that's the yellow dot is showing that's fat oxidation. So at 300 watts, which is more than double of what power he had earlier, 80% now of his energy is coming the opposite. It's coming from fat and 20% from carbohydrate. So his ability now to, you know, have a lot of glycogen still in store uh, for the run portion of, you know, the latter end of a triathlon, an Ironman triathlon is, is really material. In fact, when 1.8 is very high, and I'm going to show you some new studies in a second, which are even showing higher, but, um, you know, it's very common to see a lot of athletes in this, even pro athletes in this 0.5 to 0.8 range. And with a little bit of work, we can get them into the 1 to 1.4 range. At a 1.8 gram per minute range, really, Matt could get through most, like, sorry, half of the marathon with really not having to take much carbohydrate at all. Um, so this is probably the most recent research, and it's done by really the creme de la creme of researchers. These guys like Tim Noakes, uh, Dominic here, Jeff Volek. I mean, these are the these are the original leading minds of low carbohydrate uh, as it relates to applying this to sports performance. These are the guys that wrote the books on it, the textbooks on it. Um, but this most recent study just published a couple of months ago was really instrumental because it's probably the most controlled study we've ever seen on this to date. But what it looked at was, you know, there's this question of, okay, but if I was to just focus on high carbohydrate versus, you know, improving my fat oxidation through a low carbohydrate protocol, I lose my performance in high intensity. This study just looked at performance of 85% of VO2 max. So this is really high intensity levels. This is track 10,000, 5,000, you know, 1500 meter track type VO2 max levels. And uh, what they found was even at those intensity levels, the performance, there was, there was no difference between the two groups, the low carb and the high carb group. What they secondly showed is that case of people that can get into these very high levels of uh, fat oxidation. When you put people through a protocol, you know, most uh, athletes you can raise into the, we, what we've seen is 1.2 to 1.5. Uh, this study was showing that they can get, you know, 30%, 1.85. Um, the third point, which is really interesting that this study showed that, and this was a crossover study, Right, so they 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 run both groups and they switch them over, and they found that when they switched the group over to a, um, and this was a one month uh, trial, if you will, on a given protocol, when they shifted them to the high carbohydrate protocol, in only thirty days, thirty percent of the subjects under that high carbohydrate protocol uh, had the classic you know, what we would say clinical signs of prediabetes, which is over a hundred milligrams per deciliter of blood glucose levels. And by the way, this was, this was tested through a constant glucose monitoring on each of these athletes, uh, 24 by seven. So this is not like a, every so often do a test. This is, you know, looking at their blood glucose level 24 by seven over this period and 30% of them became prediabetic in 30 days. And then the final question uh, point was, you know, like, remember that this, this study was almost a ketogenic level. And that's not so, certainly what we're, we propose at, at S fuels, 
But um, again, I just coming back to what's driving that fat oxidation efficiency. Um, like I said earlier, it's the frequency of doing those long, slow distance sessions. So I think two, three hour sessions and dietary fat. And while this study is no reference to L-carnitine, ECGC, or glutamine, they are factors that we know improve fat oxidation. So this study began to really challenge some of the prior thinking, which a lot of classical, even textbooks would say that, yeah, at about 70% of you know intensity, uh, to 70% of VO2 max, um, you, you, you basically, you know, your, your fat oxidation stops and it's all carbohydrate oxidation. And it's just not the case. You just don't see it in, in, in the labs like that. You know, I don't know how many people, uh, Dr. Dan Plews, we work with at Endure IQ and his team and some of the athletes we've put through here in North Carolina. You just don't see this, this kind of cute concept of that 70% of VO2 max, it just switches off. It just doesn't happen. And anyone that's done, you know, some focused attention to improving fat oxidation, uh, you can find that that oxidation continues quite high up into the intensity levels. So here's here's the data that shows for a running test. So again, same test, but you're, you're sitting on a treadmill. You've still got the mask attached to your mouth. And you can see on the left-hand column here, the different intensities from 6.5 miles per hour up to 10.5 miles per hour. And you can see the increasing heart rate here. And you know, this column here that has the blue box around it, uh, 5.5 to 10, or it starts at two, meaning two calories uh, uh, per minute uh, coming from carbohydrates. So what if you divide the two calories by four, because there's, you know, there's, there's four calories per gram of carbohydrate, you get to 0.5 gram per minute of carbohydrate. Now, as we increase the intensity, we come down the chart, we go from two up to 5.5, we get to 10. You can see that the grams per minute that you're burning of carbohydrate increases. Now the catch with this is, and that's this red, a red arrow here. This is what we refer to as the lactate threshold. It's at that point that, you know, the, the, the body cannot shuttle lactate back into the muscle cells for use as fuel, lactate is actually a fuel. It's a really important fuel itself, substrate. Um, but you get to a point where the, the, if you will, mechanics between slow twitch and high twitch muscle fibers, it cannot shuttle that amount of lactate back into the slow twitch muscle fibers for energy. And then you begin, begin to have these hydrogen uh, ions, you know, swirling around the blood supply. And you've of course got the classic lactic acid effect, if you will, the burning sensation. Um, and you can see here on the right side uh, of this, you know, in blue box here, 14.2. Uh, this is again, um, calories of, uh, of fat that is being burned uh, at this particular, uh, this is my highest level of uh, fat oxidation. And if you divide the 14.2 by nine, because there's nine grams, uh, sorry, nine calories of uh, energy per gram of fat, you divide that, you get 1.57 grams per minute that I'm burning of fat at that particular intensity. And you can see that it was, you know, it, it changes as you go up and down this uh, intensity uh, curve. And what's important to point out, like I said earlier, is it shut off as you get into higher intensity levels, you can train this to get better and, and better uh, to a point. Um, a few other aspects to point out here, Derek, would be, you know, if you start carbohydrate consumption before you get into training, what you're basically doing is triggering the blood, you know, blood glucose will rise, insulin will respond and it will blunt fat. So what we guide uh, avoid that is for the first 30 to 60 minutes is to avoid the use of carbohydrate. And what that does is the sheer movement of muscle tissue begins to open the channels for glucose to come out of the blood supply into the muscle cell to be used as energy without insulin. This is why um, 
you know, exercise is promoted for all diabetics is because they're trying to improve that, you know, opening of the channels, the GLUT4 channels that allow the glucose to come out of the blood and into the muscle cells. Why is that important? Well, like I said, if you prior to a race or prior to a training, uh, avoid the use of carbohydrate for that period until those channels open. And at that point, you can take carbohydrate and because you're not triggering insulin, you now have got the perfect situation of simultaneous, efficient oxidation of fat and carbohydrate going on together. And that's exactly where you want to be. If you want to go into a workout and feel satisfied, meaning like of the guts, you want to feel like you've got the energy to work out, et cetera. We ran a study with Dan's team down in Auckland on different foods prior to workout and protein and fat have very little issue on blunting fat oxidation prior doesn't have the carbohydrate has protein and fat but it again it's trying to satisfy you giving you the energy in the way of fat without blunting fat oxidation going into the race uh, into the training session third point here is avoiding fructose and the reason for that is it has a detrimental effect on fat oxidation one Two, it actually has a blunting effect on aerobic development. Um, so if you continue to take a lot of fructose, and um, we can have a whole discussion if you want at some point, Derek, on uh, on gut training uh, and some of the issues related to that, but it is having a detrimental effect on the core agenda of you know training, and that is you know one of the core core agendas is is aerobic development. And that is affecting that. It also affects the efficiency of the GLUT4 channels that actually bring glucose into the muscle cells. So, you know, we would we would advise to avoid all of that in your training fueling and your racing usage, particularly age group racing. As you get up into a professional level of racing, you're looking at all forms of substrate. Uh, but just because that happens, you know, that doesn't apply then just to every other age group athlete because you're just not obviously got the oxidization capability that a professional athlete has just because of the amount of training that they, that they, that they do. Um, and I think we've already talked about some of the other substrates. So this is just a simple practical application and I've, I'll, I'll leave it on the next slide, but I can show where people can download this, but this is just showing left to right, these kind of different intensity levels from your classic aerobic zone two, long, slow distance, right through to low tempo, upper tempo and racing, and how you need to shift between what you're taking on board as fuel at these different intensities. As your body shifts to the different types of fuel, it will naturally prefer to oxidize and use as it goes from low intensity to high intensity. So yeah, I'll, I'll give... You'll see here these these QR codes. If people want to download that guide, that QR code on the left will will, will give them that guide um, to help them understand that more and how to do that. Um, and then we have just a bunch of videos um, up on on YouTube, which is that right hand QR code. So hopefully that helps, uh, Derek. Just give a little bit of background to what we've been working on and uh, some of the findings we've had, some of the more recent research and uh, ultimately some of the practical application to uh, to do this. Yeah, the new research that's coming out is fascinating because it's like when I, I think I mentioned this before, but like when I first started running and, and stuff, it was like consume carbs nonstop. And then um, recently I've been uh, pacing and crewing Jeff Browning and I've seen this with Zach Bitter as well, but like not consuming carbohydrates before a race. And before Jeff Browning ran Moab 240 last year, I think he just had a couple eggs or something for breakfast. Right. And kind of the point of that was to like start with a, your gut feeling good, but then also to um, promote fat metabolism. And he did the same thing at Sedona Canyons 125 um, last month. Um, I think he just had some cream in his coffee or something, or maybe he had some green tea that morning for breakfast, like something super mellow. And then after like 30 minutes or an hour, he started consuming like just a, a small amount of carbohydrates. And then he crushed both those events and recovered really well. So there's, it's cool to see the science, but also see it. Uh, backed up in real world results, not just in a lab yeah, setting. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, generally we would say for those three days leading into a race is that, you know, like you may want to slightly increase. And we talk about, you know, getting up to 
100, 100 grams carbohydrate a day, you might want to slightly increase carbohydrate consumption more just to top off the liver and muscle glycogen coming out of the last training block, you know, prior to your race. But again, that's, it's complex carbohydrate. It's not, you know, highly glycemic um, type of carbohydrates and it's a slight increase, you know, uh, that's sufficient on race morning. Whatever you do, if you, if you, even the night before, if you're taking a ton of carbohydrates, some form of protein that's for some people that's egg can be some you know a bit of whey powder um some yogurt um avocado what have you um that that's that's fine um and then yeah usually it's i say 30 to 60 minutes it's just a function of the intensity of that first 30 to 60 minutes if it's like you know, <laughs> some of these races go straight into an elevation in fact i think that happens at, at um at hard rock and Western States, but, um, UTMB it's, uh, it's, it's flat, flat, pretty much flat for the first, you know, eight kilometers. Um, you know, you, you don't have to worry too much about taking any carbohydrate in that point. Uh, in triathlon, it's easy, of course, cause the swim is, is the first part of the race. Right. So you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. It seems a little easier to triathlon versus in a, like yeah. a trail run or whatever and especially right. in western states like you're saying where you you do you start with like a three mile climb essentially just exactly. right off the gate <laughs> exactly so yeah in that case you know it may only be 30 minutes before you know those channels are well switched on and you can start taking in the carbohydrate yeah it makes a lot of sense and, and maybe i'm off base here but it seems like people need to like take this these new studies the new data that are coming out and then apply it in their training to see like what actually works and not just be like, Hey, I got into Western States. Now I heard this podcast. I'm going to apply it on race day. Right. Def definitely. I mean, we have had athletes do that and it doesn't work. So, <laughs> um, you know, because you, you, you are talking about not having to take as much carbohydrate, um, you know, reduce the gut GI distress. Um, but it's all founded on the basis that, you know, you've upregulated your fat oxidation and, um, you need to you need to build that capability and that happens in training uh both uh, training uh, from a nutritional standpoint and physical uh, training uh so yeah for sure yeah definitely um and let's definitely like in the future we got to wrap up here um we got some stuff to do but let's definitely have another show in the future about um about gut and gi distress because there's been a, there's always like funny memes and stuff about it on the internet and Instagram and everything, because it's such a common thing in the sport where it's like, oh, I got to go to the bathroom during the race, or I have GI problems or pre post, like all these different things and dealing with those issues myself. And for the most part, I've avoided them. It Now I have anyways, it's like, there's such simple things you can do to totally avoid that. And like, yeah, it's funny to talk about, but it can really destroy your race or your training. And, and yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just disappointing, I feel, just for, you know, families that have sacrificed, you know, in some cases, kind of the stability of a training where the mother or the father is, you know, training for one of these events for six months, and they're quite, you know, separate to the family, all in the spirit of this race, and they only get in the race only to find it falls apart because they took too much of this carbohydrate or caffeine and what have you, and uh, it's just it really disappoint like it's real sad because the sacrifices that go into the sport are really large as you know um you just want it to go well for people on race day you really do wish them all the best and there's some simple things to do to avoid this and uh i think everyone needs to know that yeah definitely i 100 percent agree but um let's wrap it up here then and we'll just wrap it up on gi distress i guess <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, great to catch up with you and um i'm a little jealous of you there in uh in the canyon but uh we'll, we'll catch up with you real soon yeah definitely and i'm excited to see how nicole does at stage she's definitely earned her way in so it'll be fun to watch her race this oh yeah month. she has too yeah all right buddy good to see you <laughs> yeah. take care all right. yeah thanks Lane. we'll talk soon bye bye, bye.